0: Buzzkillers, buzzkillers, as you know, this month of January is totally taken up with episodes from authors of chapters in the great new book, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. And we have with us on the line, very fortunately for us and for you, Dr. Carol Anderson from Emory University, who's the author of the final chapter in the book called Voter Fraud. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Anderson.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: We should mention to all you buzzkillers that this episode is being brought to you by Elizabeth Santos, one of our great Patreon supporters, one of the great longtime friends of the Buzzkill Institute. Dr. Anderson, the the rhetoric of voter fraud is, uh, is the most annoying thing to come out of the recent political landscape in our country. And as we're going to talk about the sort of Broader scale electoral fraud that comes from institutions and parties and all sorts of things is ongoing, and voter fraud at the individual level is extremely rare. It still is being trumpeted, if you will, as the most as the, as the most pressing problem in American electoral life. I'd just like to use the last sentence in your chapter, which is, and I'd, I want to read it out. Quote, myths masquerading as reality do enormous damage. So if you don't mind, before we go into the weeds and look at the details of these claims of voter fraud, and then the actualities of what I'm calling electoral fraud for the last 150 years-ish, do you mind explaining to the buzzkillers the ways in which this myth in particular can do such damage?
1: because they shape, they they bend reality, they twist it. So people are making decisions not based on what's there, but the lies that have just been poured into them about what's there. And so then you get really bad, destructive policies, policies that undermine American democracy, policies that undermine its citizenry based on these lies. And that's the damage that I talk about, because when you think about, January 6th and the insurrection, what sent those folks launching up into the Capitol, willing to destroy that Capitol, willing to destroy the bedrock foundation of American democracy, it was the lie of massive rampant voter fraud. And the lie that this fraud emanated out of Atlanta, out of Philadelphia, out of Detroit, out of Milwaukee, out of Maricopa County, notice that those are all locales that have sizable minority populations and so it is linking the theft of American democracy with folks of color
0: and why do you say that it's directed at voters of color? I mean, it, you know at least in the abstract you could argue that accusations of fraud, of voter fraud could be directed at anybody.
1: And what we're looking at historically is what you're seeing is that it's linked with African-Americans. And so, and it's linked with immigrants and it's linked with folks of color. And it's because The issue of voting is bedrock foundational to democracy. And when that democracy and who is American, who is worthy of being American, is then linked with whiteness, then the assault on democracy are by all of these folks who are not white. I mean, so we see it in Mississippi with the Mississippi Plan of 1890. And there is when you had more African-American men, because women couldn't vote at that time, more African-American men registered to vote than white men. And you had a thing happening there where you had poor whites and poor blacks joining together, voting in politicians who believe that you should be paid for your labor, adequately paid for your labor. I mean, they, they had this much more progressive vision than the political leadership that was on top. And so that political leadership started hollering voter fraud because having that kind of progressive vision was absolutely threatening to the status quo. And when they yelled voter fraud, then they went after black folks with massive disfranchisement. So
0: this really happens, you know, in a big way, starting in the late 19th century, more or less starting after Reconstruction. Am I right about that?
1: So you start seeing elements of it during Reconstruction. So for instance, Florida in 1868, passes a permanent felony disfranchisement law. That is one year after the Reconstruction Act of 1867 that says that black men can vote. The next year, Florida passes this permanent felony disfranchisement law and then crafts laws that criminalizes blackness and so that these laws these laws certain laws are only applied against african americans or are only designed for african americans like vagrancy and that is what can then strip you of your voting rights you started seeing South Carolina came up with a literacy test, which was like an eight box test so that each box you had to put in the vote, the governor's vote would go in this box. The the attorney general's vote would go in this box. The secretary of state's vote would go in this box, but the boxes weren't colored. And so if you couldn't read what the, the box was for, then you couldn't, you couldn't vote So, uh, South Carolina had its own literacy test. What Mississippi did though, was to start pulling all of these things together, a literacy test a poll tax, uh, which Georgia had coming out of eight in the early 1870s, you know, started pulling all of these together in this one omnibus package that was really designed to wither, to shrink, to cauterize African-Americans voting rights.
0: And one of the things that's so astounding to me, and to, will be astounding to anyone who reads the chapter, is how brazen these people were when they wrote these laws and regulations and statutes. They, they weren't trying to hide their racism or hide their desire to keep the voting rolls white. It's, it's out there. It's, it's written. It's
1: spoken in speeches. It's amazing. And what what to me what becomes even more amazing is the role of the US Supreme Court in looking at these laws. I mean, that's the thing. So with the Mississippi plan of 1890, when the court looked at the literacy test and the poll tax, it looked at both of those in the Williams decision and said, eh. They don't violate the 15th Amendment that says that the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And so when the Supreme Court looked at these two two policies, these two laws, and said, ah, they don't violate And and it was like, and how do they not violate? Because in 1890, there were over 190,000 black men registered to vote. By 1892, two years after the Mississippi plan, there were only 8,600. This is a targeted hit. This is a targeted hit. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, it doesn't violate the 15th because everybody has to pay the poll tax and everybody has to take the literacy test. Everybody did not have to deal with centuries of slavery that created the endemic poverty that made paying the poll tax virtually impossible. Everybody did not have to deal with centuries of slavery that made literacy a death sentence for so many who were enslaved and then have to deal with the unequal funding for Black schools coming out of the Civil War. So the everybody has to is is just this kind of fiction, this fantasy that the Supreme Court ruled, eh, didn't happen. And the other states didn't just basically bull rushed right through that. And you saw this sweep of rewriting the constitutions happening in North Carolina, in Georgia, in Alabama. You know, these Southern states just went for it.
0: Yes. And we should we should remind buzzkillers or, or tell buzzkillers who are or certainly in other countries in the world why... These things were put in place that were discriminatory at at election polls, but technically, according to the Supreme Court at the time, were not unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional because of the 15th Amendment to discriminate on race. So Southern states then put in all these literacy tests and everything else that they can then tweak whenever, however they want, almost at the point of a person coming up to the poll worker. Why isn't that, why wasn't that considered unconstitutional?
1: because it was race neutral on its face. And so it it was the way that these politicians could neutralize what they saw as a political threat. These black voters just eliminate them, eliminate them from the electorate. And then you only had to deal with a small strata of your, your population that you had to be responsive to as an elected official. And the threat that that these black voters poised was, you know, things like believing in civil rights, wanting to see civil rights legislation, wanting to have equal funding for schools, wanting to have paved roads in their neighborhood, wanting to have quality services. So like the fire department being able to come to their their community when a home was on fire, having representatives who are responsive is what we think of as in a democracy. And this was this is why voter suppression is so anti democratic, because it means that you can have so called represent representatives who are absolutely unrepresentative.
0: Right. Of the of the population of their own district.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. So these policies were so powerful that by the time that the U.S. was fighting in the Second World War, that would be fighting the Nazis and the fascists. Mm-hmm. You had voter turnout in the 1942 election that was in the single digits in these poll tax states. In the single digits. Yeah. When we get to the 1944 election, and so this is a big one, FDR is running for his fourth term, absolutely unprecedented. The nationwide voter turnout rate was 62%. In the poll tax states, it was 14%. 14% mm-hmm. in a presidential election. This is this is the damage. That voter suppression does, and is voter suppression based on the lie, the myth of massive, rampant voter fraud.
0: Yes. Well, the, the amazing thing is that they keep they keep it going because, well, they keep while well, they're putting in, implementing all these things, they're saying it's this. We have this constant problem of voter fraud everywhere when it's very easy to see that in you know mirroring states like Illinois, border states, Indiana, Ohio. No one's having these voter fraud problems, but suddenly in Kentucky, they have to put in, you know, poll taxes, but also, especially in the, in the Deeper deeper South, literacy tests. And and by the way, sorry, one more question for people who don't know enough about this. Isn't it true that the, the, the literacy test was, almost all literacy tests of these kinds were administered by the poll worker? So if a white person yeah. came up to the poll And we're we're told, okay, you have to take the literacy test. The, the, The elector says, what's the literacy test? And that could be spell your name. But then if the next person is black, the literacy test could be recite the Constitution word for word. Is that sort of inconsistency in application true?
1: It is absolutely true. Lordy. It was the, the kind of capriciousness, how arbitrary the power of the registrar was so that in Mississippi, the registrar could ask a, a black voter, how many bubbles in a bar of soap? Yes. I mean, so when you when you have an unanswerable question, a man named Mr. L, who who helped raise me, he grew up in Jim Crow, Georgia. He said his literacy test question was, how high is up? Yes, You know, so when you get how high is up as the unanswerable question, that is the gatekeeper to you and your citizenship rights, to you and your right to vote. And so in North Carolina, there was a case called Lassiter. It was the Lasseter decision in 1959. And North Carolina saw this thing coming through. Uh-huh. And it had that, that arbitrariness of the registrar where whites really didn't have to take the literacy test or they would get a simple piece to have to read in the Constitution, whereas African-Americans would have entire passages to have to read. And so when they saw this thing coming through, what they did was they removed the arbitrariness of the registrar. Because they thought that was the thing that would be the thing that would trip up the Supreme Court. And they were right. The Supreme Court looked at at the literacy test in 1959. So this is, you know, five years after the Brown decision that notes the separate and unequal schools. Right. Um, And then Brown round two and 55, which is with all deliberate speed. And so four years after with all deliberate speed, the U.S. Supreme Court looks at the literacy test and says, ah, it doesn't violate the 15th amendment because everybody has to take it. So the role of the U.S. Supreme Court in not upholding democracy is real, it is tangible, and it is the way that they're willing to play with the fiction of equality before the law, but also the fiction of massive rampant voter fraud as a state interest Right. that balances the bar- various barriers that the states then put up to access the ballot box.
0: And in the chapter, you specifically point out Judge William Rehnquist as one of the people who before he became a Supreme Court judge and, and indeed chief justice had participated in these things. Do you mind telling the buzzkillers about that? I I didn't know this and I was floored.
1: Yes. When he was in Arizona, in Phoenix, he was part of a group that would send out postcards to voters in minority, primarily minority districts, and then with a do not forward. And so when those postcards came back, then they're looking at the voter list going, ah, fraudulent voter, fraudulent voter. And then they would go to the polls on polling day and start harassing the voters who are standing in line, particularly Hispanic voters. Mm -hmm. Where do you live? Are you sure you're you're registered to vote? Aren't you illegal? I mean, just really just harassing voters in line. Rehnquist was a part of this for years, years. Mm-hmm. And it's part of what we see happening today with the kind of true, the vote folks who are challenging voters, particularly in minority districts, demanding that they prove that they are really registered voters in that district eligible to vote, that they're real Americans. Right. I mean, it's just, oh, uh. and remember Rehnquist is the mentor to John Roberts, who is the current chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: Right. And what one would think at the very least, just being so political, in it, you know, this is like asking, this like putting Carl Rove on the Supreme Court or even James Carville on the Supreme Court, <laughs> to be such an operator, but then suddenly to be acceptable as a Supreme Court justice is amazing to me. The other thing was, I think this is in 1960, but especially in 1964, these ballot security forces. Mm. This is very frightening. This is Stalinistic. This is something that we we like to tell ourselves would never happen in the United States, yet it did happen.
1: It, it did happen. And so the Republican National Committee, uh, what they did was, again, they sent out these postcards and then when the with the do not forward. And so the ones that were returned as undeliverable uh-huh. then, and they were always in these minority, not always, but overwhelmingly in these minority precincts, these minority districts. And then they would have, they would hire, they hired folks in uniforms with armbands on ballot security task force. They had big posters up on the wall and in the community saying, You know, if you try to vote and you've got something else going on, you can be arrested at the polls. I mean, so it was pure voter intimidation that was happening. They had over like a one had over 100000 of these ballot security task force members who were going around to, what, 35 different cities, basically intimidating voters. And that happened in 64. It happened again in 81. And that one flipped an election in New Jersey. And that is what then led to a consent decree that the Republican National Committee, committee could not engage in this ballot security task force mess. And they were under that consent decree for, I think, two decades. Mm-hmm. It was during the Trump years when that consent decree was finally lifted.
0: We should also remind people that the ballots the security officers were usually off-duty policemen who even though they were off duty wore their uniforms. Yes. then that must well that must be legal and be and another thing is before we go too far again we should remind people who not necessarily American listeners or other listeners don't know this you know, it, we're talking now because we're in the 1960s about the Republican Party doing this. But in the 1890s and the 1870s, and 80, it was the Democrats who were doing this in the South. Yes. So it's a it's a party it, wherever the racism sort of moves <laughs> as a blob, as an amoeba is where if it's in the Democratic parties, they do it. If It's a party. They
1: do it. Yes, exactly exactly and you see the for the republicans in the 1960s it was the sense of what what they say during the goldwater run you go hunting where the ducks are and so for them right. there were there were more whites than there were african americans and so it didn't make sense to try to woo this african american constituency when they're absolutely more whites and what the civil rights movement did at this time was that you had whites who thought, oh, they're going too fast. They're just moving too fast. So you know, from the Civil War to, you know, 100 years later, they're moving too fast. And that sense of they're moving too fast created this anxiety, this racist anxiety that the Republicans pounced on with the Southern strategy. And that mm-hmm. that Southern strategy was, as, as Lee Atwater, who was a campaign strategist for Ronald Reagan, said, in 54, you could say the N-word. It wouldn't hurt you. But by 68, you say it it backfires. And so you start talking in the abstract. And the whole point of talking in the abstract is, you know, so you're talking about forced busing, you're talking about taxes, you're talking about states' rights. Uh But the whole point is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. And so when you begin to think about these voter suppression laws, what they're designed to do. Is that blacks get hurt worse than whites, and so some whites are going to get knocked out too, but those are whites that are are collateral damage. They provide the fig leaf to say this isn't a racist policy because if it was a racist policy, yeah. only black folks would go down. No, white folks are are there are some white folks who don't have voter ID, IDs to be able to vote. So how can this be racist? Exactly. Yeah. How can this be racist? And so it is that aura of color blindness that becomes so pernicious in this post-civil rights wave of voter suppression.
0: And again, Lee Atwater brazenly admits it, maybe he doesn't rent billboards and put it on it, but he just openly says it. This is a good time, Dr. Anderson, for us to take a little break for a sponsorship. And we'll be back in a second. Okay, we are back with Dr. Carol Anderson from Emory University, who's written this wonderful chapter. In the book we're promoting this month, Myth America, and her chapters on voter fraud. We talked before we left Dr. Anderson about the things that had happened really up until the, if you will, the Reagan era. I was shocked, of course, things continued as they had before, although not sometimes I wasn't shocked because I lived through some of these things. But what happens really in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and up to this period, as there's increasing press scrutiny of what's going on, how do these election fraudsters, electoral fraudsters, continue to, to do this sort of thing?
1: Suppress the vote? By really hollering voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. And so let me tell you a story, because I'm a historian, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was the 2000 election. And we often think of that 2000 election for the hanging chads in Florida, not being able to count. or or putting police officers at the the only drive-through point, the access point to the voting booths in the Black neighborhood, all of those things. Yes, that happened in Florida. But I want us to turn our attention to St. Louis, Missouri. Yes. Because in St. Louis, Missouri, you had the Board of Elections illegally remove fifty, almost 50,000 people from the voter rolls. So they show up to vote and their names aren't on the books. And so the poll workers can't get to anybody at the board of elections. They're trying to call in, the lines are jammed. And so they start sending people downtown to the board of elections. Imagine having all of those people swarming into the board. The board can't figure out what's going on. People are jammed up in there. It's a bureaucratic nightmare. They're there trying to vote on that Tuesday in November and the clock is ticking. And so by the time the polls are getting ready to close at 7 p.m., people are still downtown trying to get back on the books. So the Democrats sue to, to keep the polls open for an additional three hours. The judge agrees going, this is not their fault. The Republicans come in and immediately countersue and say, this is an attempt at voter fraud. Mm -hmm. Voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. And the judge agrees and shuts down the polls at 745. That narrative worked so well, because part of what we also have to understand about the narrative of voter fraud is that you have the respectable members in society giving voice to it. So you had U.S. Senator Kit Bond saying, this is massive, rampant voter fraud. They had dogs voting. They had dead people voting. They had people coming in using addresses from various vacant lots, just changing their... you know, changing their cap and coming in and voting over and over and over. And it sounded so reasonable because in American society, we link criminality with blackness. Uh And so here you have a city that is overwhelmingly black, that is majority black. And you say, this city is trying to steal the election. These folks who live in this urban area are trying to steal American democracy. And Kit Bond takes that message with him into Congress as Congress is crafting the Help America Vote Act, which is to deal with the ridiculousness that happened in Florida where they're like, people have lost faith and confidence in the American election system. We've gotta restore that confidence. And so they take the reality of what happened in Florida, and then Kit Bond goes in there with voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. Uh. And in federal legislation, then you get in the Help America Vote Act, the first piece of federal legislation that takes the lie of voter fraud and makes it sound real by saying states can require IDs in order to be able to Mm -hmm. vote. Mm -hmm. And from there we get A couple of states like Indiana and then Georgia that implement voter ID laws in the mid-2000s. The one from Georgia, when it went up to, because Georgia was under the Voting Rights Act pre-clearance where they had to get approved first before they implemented, the U.S. Department of Justice looked at Georgia's voter IDs law and said, Lord, this thing is racist. Uh, (laughs) uh, This uh, thing uh. is racist. You know, they're requiring IDs, but the city of Atlanta doesn't have departments of motor vehicles within its area, nor are they on public transportation lines. We're seeing a a differential in terms of who has the types of IDs that Georgia says you need in order to be able to vote. And that's a racial differential where those IDs are overwhelmingly held by whites, but not by African-Americans. I mean, and they were just going down the line. The staff attorneys from the U.S. Department of Justice were overruled because the U.S. Department of Justice said, "Nah." They were overruled by a Bush, W. Bush appointee, who's who, boom, let that thing Uh go through. There were, then there was a court case and the judge said, woo, this thing is bad. And so Georgia removed what they called the poll tax component of that, which was you had to pay for an ID. So before the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, you already had these tremors. But the big tremor was the election of Barack Obama. Right. Yeah. In that election. So remember 2008, where there was this kind of celebratory, woo. Ooh, we have crossed the racial Rubicon. Look at what we just did. We just put a black man in the White House. Did you see that? Did you see what we did? We have overcome. <laughs> I mean, it was like joy, joy, joy. Uh uh-uh. uh. One, that narrative is not correct because what it was saying is look, the majority of whites who voted voted for Obama. That's not accurate. The majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1964, Yes, since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, and that held true for Obama. So how did he get in? He had an incredible ground game that brought in millions of new voters who are overwhelmingly African-American, Latino, Asian-American, young and poor. That became the hit list for voter suppression. So when you begin to look at the laws that come up after the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, they go after at least one of those groups in the Obama coalition. It's pernicious. It is wicked. But then things
0: continue because we saw in certainly post-2016 and, you know, you know the systematic closing down of polling places, consolidation of polling places into far-flung areas where people couldn't get to on public transportation. And, you know, there should be a, a polling place, uh, you know, within a, every couple of miles. You should be able in the United States, in my view, to walk, be able to walk to vote if you have to. But you can't do that in Texas now. You can't do that in uh, across the South. You can do it in lots of other places. And it seems to be getting worse, Professor. I don't understand why. Those are the new literacy tests, it's mm. geog- geographic barriers.
1: Exactly. And so here in Georgia, they shut down, since Shelby County v. Holder, since the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, they've shut down over 200 polling places, the majority of them in minority and poor communities. So in right. the 2018 election, for instance in Randolph County I love this story in Randolph County there was a retired government worker who was sitting there reading the newspaper the way my daddy used to read the newspaper from cover yeah, yeah. to cover right and he's reading the legal notices and in the legal notices you know those are those little things right he's yeah, reading yeah, yeah. he's reading the legal notices and it says that the board of the county board of elections is going to be voting on shutting down 6 of the 7 polling places in Randolph County. It's incredible. Yes, yes. And Randolph County is 61% black. So part of why you're seeing this this become more entrenched is because, one, the demographics of America are changing. Mm -hmm. And, And the Republican Party, when it did its Southern strategy and wooed in the disaffected whites from the Democratic Party. What that did was they brought that toxin of white supremacy into the Republican Party writ large, thinking they could control it, thinking that they could handle it. That thing took over, as, as white supremacy virus will do. And it moved the party further and further to the right, where its policies don't resonate with the vast majority of Americans. So, being able to win these large, unfettered elections is not feasible. It's not possible because the policies are repugnant to the majority of Americans. And so, what you do is right. you, you have to call the electorate. And so, I think about Paul Wyrick, who was the co founder of the Heritage Foundation. And in 1980, Before a group, a Christian group, he said, oh, all of you are goo-goos. You you believe in good government because you want everybody to vote. Well, I don't want everybody to vote because quite candidly, our leverage goes up as the voting populace goes down. And so when you think about this is, the, this is the recipe, this is the mantra for voter suppression, but you can't say we don't want everybody to vote. So what you do say is that we want to protect the integrity of our elections. We want to preserve American democracy by making sure that only legal voters can access the ballot box. And so it's that kind of linguistic maneuvering that covers how stark and nasty and vile these laws are. So like with the the voter ID laws, you know, and because, and it sounds so logical because it plays to a middle-class norm. Everybody's got an ID, but everybody does not have the kind of ID that you need in order to vote. Let's take Texas. So what Texas did two hours after the Shelby County v. Holder decision, two hours after that, Texas implements its voter ID law. And it says you must have a government issued photo ID, but your student ID from a state college or university won't count. But your gun registration card will. Guns, yes. Education, no. And there are massive demographics behind that. 50% of those in colleges and universities, in the state colleges and universities in Texas, are folks of color. 80% of those who have the gun registration card are white. Yeah, so you're able to craft your electorate based on how these legislators call through the data to figure out who has what types of ID. In Alabama, what Alabama did under the guise of stopping voter fraud, making sure that there's no, protecting the viability of of the ballot box, was that they also created a, you must have a government issued photo ID to vote. Mm -hmm. but then said your public housing ID does not count. Even though it's government-issued. It is government-issued, right? I mean, does it (laughs) get more government-issued than public housing, right? And said, no, that does not count. In Alabama, 71% of those in public housing are African-American. And what the NAACP Legal Defense Fund found was that For many of them, it was the only government-issued photo ID that they had. And so then folks were like, well, I got to vote. So, you know, I guess I'm going to get a driver's license. Well, Governor Bentley, listening to his mistress, and Lord, that had to be some really interesting pillow talk, (laughs) (laughs) shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties so now folks have to go oh but you know 50 miles or so to the nearest Department of Motor Vehicles to get the driver's license that government issued photo ID to be able to vote. But if you don't have a driver's license and you don't drive and no. Alabama's ranked 48th in the nation in terms of public transportation, how are you supposed to get there? So that's that's why it looks race neutral on its surface but underneath it it is as vicious as the poll tax and the literacy test but
0: again it yes it looks so race race neutral in many ways on the surface but uh, like ha, as you've been saying and it's certainly clear in the chapter the people who push these things through are so brazen about it it you know to say that this, these are not this is not one our voting goes down when the when the When our success goes down, when the numbers of voters go up, you couldn't get away with that in Europe. You just couldn't get away with
1: it. Right, and and so the folks who crafted Alabama's voter ID law Mm -hmm. recorded themselves saying, how do we depress the black voter turnout? Because all of these aborigines and these illiterates will get on these HUD finance buses and go to the polls. There is so much racism and contempt in that statement from lawmakers who are crafting the (laughs) laws. And the courts looked at that and said, this law is not discriminatory.
0: It's just shocking.
1: So part of what we really have to wrestle with is the role of the courts in this. I mean, so it is the gutting Uh of Shelby County v. Holder in 2013. That's how Donald Trump came to power. So one of the things is that, you know, I I heard uh, folks say, well, you know, black folks just didn't turn out because, you know, they just weren't filling Hillary. I mean, because, I mean, you know, she's like Hillary. I mean, she's not Obama. She's Hillary. Well, this was the first presidential election in 50 years without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And these states had implemented a series of poll closures, voter roll purges, changing early voting, reducing early voting times requiring IDs that they knew black people didn't have. I mean, so up in Milwaukee, Scott Walker, who was the governor, implemented this voter ID law and then moved departments of motor vehicles basically to make it inaccessible in Milwaukee, where 70% of the state's black population lives. And to reduce the hours when those places were opened and to reduce the accessibility of those places. And then, shocking, the Black voter turnout in the 2016 election, it went down by 68,000 votes from 2012 to 2016. And the vast majority of that came out of Milwaukee.
0: That's astounding, which is not a, a state that was previously covered by the 1965 Voter Rights Act. Exactly. Professor, we've talked about that act. On this show before, and we but we need to remind Buzzkillers, the important part and what's called the preclearance part is that the, the law said, because things are so bad, certain states said to certain states, your history of racial voter suppression is so bad and so long, and that doesn't seem to get any better, that anytime you want to change your voting laws, you have to run it through Washington first. And we have to in this in just civil rights department, a division of the, of the justice department. Then we well the very second it seems to me that that law was struck down or I should say let lapse but in reality struck down these states went right back to this sort of crap. Absolutely. And then you have a state like Wisconsin which used to be an,
1: a hugely progressive state Exactly. It's just shocking. It is. And so part of what you're looking at is that these were states where Republicans were voted in both as governor and in the 2010 election and in controlling both houses of the legislature. And so when when you have that kind of unilateral control, And when you know that your policies really, really, um, as you start implementing, you know, banning reproductive rights, going after voting rights, going after uh, education, going after, going after, going after, after, and those things aren't resonating with the population, what you do then is you craft these laws so that our leverage goes up as the voting populace goes down. Look at gerrymandering in Wisconsin. What that one does is the Republicans lock themselves in a hotel room. There are a small number of them in a hotel room for four months with a computer and powerful map drawing software and something akin to Cambridge analytic data. So they knew who lived where, what their proclivities were, and they had two goals. One was to reduce the number of competitive districts, so that that would decrease voter turnout. Because if somebody's been there, as my mother would say, since heck was a pup, you know, you're just not you're not <laughs> you're just not going out to vote. But if it's competitive and you know that your vote's really going to count, it might be the difference maker. You show up. So competitive districts drive voter turnout. You make sure that you reduce the number of competitive districts you can reduce voter turnout. The second piece, and this is what is so anti-democratic, is that regardless of the number of votes that we get, we will always have the majority of power in the legislature. So you craft your districts so that you can choose your voters instead of your voters choosing you. So in that first election afterwards, Democrats received something like 52% of the vote and they earned something like 38, 39% of the seats in the state legislature. And each subsequent election, it got worse. And so what we're seeing here with the lie of voter fraud and these voter suppression laws coming through these governors and these state legislatures is that it has metastasized throughout the Republican Party. So you think about Florida. Uh I talked about early on how... Florida passed a felony disfranchisement law in 1868. In 2018, Amendment 4 was voted on. And Amendment 4 dealt with the fact that there were like 6.1 million people who could not vote in the United States because of a felony conviction. 1.7 million of them were in Florida alone. And Florida was one of a handful of states that had permanent felony disfranchisement. So even after you served your sentence and did your, your parole, you still couldn't vote. You had you had this really long winding road to try to get back your voting rights afterwards. It was basically permanent. The amendment and 40% of black men in Florida could not vote because of permanent felony disfranchisement. Amendment four passes by 65%. Mm-hmm. The Republicans in the state legislature clutched their hearts and they're like, whoa, how do we stop this? And they're like, oh, we know we're going to redefine what completion of sentence means. And so they say completion of sentence means not only have you served your time in prison, you know, completed your parole, but you have also paid all fines, fees, and court costs. Folks looked at that and said, Lord, that looks like a poll tax. <laughs> it looks like I've got to pay, I got to pay this in order to be able to vote. Yes. yes. And so that case goes up through the courts. And the court ruled that, A, this isn't a poll tax. This is just the completion of a sentence. And B, Florida doesn't have to tell you how much you owe. That is like the worst of the literacy test, right? How high is up? How many bubbles in a bar of soap? How much do I owe? Mm. So when the state can ask you an unanswerable question, and that unanswerable question deals with your access to the ballot box that's Florida. So you have these states who are figuring out how to maneuver, and they're doing so under the guise of election integrity. They're doing so under, under the guise of ensuring that right. our elections are free from fraud, uh, free from all kinds of machinations.
0: Well, looking towards the future, Professor, l- let me posit this. We know that the problem is not voter fraud from the voter level, And all these voter fraud stories, once you look into them, are fiction. Even the 1960 daily dead people voting in Chicago is largely fiction. Okay, so, so the electoral fraud is coming from the top down. It's coming from political parties, organizations, state legislatures, governors, on and on and on and on and on. But these things are done and put in place by organizations. So they're put in place by political parties. They're put in place by by reactionary movements. Can't the other side, frankly, in this era, the normal side, can't we also put up our own organizations and get to work and start to fix and undo these things? I mean, is it too ethereal to say we need to fix voting rights and we need to make districts, congressional districts up to statisticians and demographers, not political legislatures? Is that not enough of a bread and butter issue to get people to march in the streets?
1: Oh, so I'm in Georgia. So let me tell you about Georgia. Georgia has a number of grassroots organizations that starting in 2010, got on the ground, knocking on doors, overcoming the various barriers that the state keeps putting up in front of folks trying to keep them from the ballot box. And it's a multiracial, multi-religious, multi-ethnic coalition of organizations that are doing this heavy lifting. This is what flipped Georgia in the 2020 uh-huh. presidential election because the barriers were there and folks were like, not today, not today. I remember hearing a one young man who was standing in line for 10 hours to vote, 10 hours. And he said, oh, I've been here 10 hours and I will stay here as long as it takes. Uh And so people have been doing that work and that work is, is to get folks engaged and voting and voting for folks who believe in democracy. So that these laws can be overturned, and that you can have the politicians and the policymakers in place to put through the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. It's a long process. It is it, it it's not going to happen overnight., um, but it's what flipped not just the the presidency, but flipped control of the U.S. Senate as well as Reverend Raphael Warnock and Senator John Ossoff won their campaigns to become U.S. senators. That was that grassroots mobilizing, organizing that you see from normal folk uh, who who believe in democracy. And it requires having more of that happen across this nation. And I think that as you see people's rights being cauterized, what it does is folks are like, whoa, you don't become complacent. You realize that each election is important and that you have to engage. And so that's what we're seeing in terms of these massive turnouts. Look at Gen Z. Uh, right, they, right. Yeah, they keep coming out. Since that 2016 election, and they saw what happened, they were like, oh my God. So they came out in 2018, then they doubled their turnout in 2020. They doubled it again, I believe, in 2022 because they're also not buying this lie of voter fraud, because they're part of that Obama coalition that I talked about, where voting laws are designed to knock them off. And so you hear now trying to raise the voting age to 21 from 18. That's being bandied about because it's like, well, if you're not old enough to, to drink, why should you be old enough to vote? Uh, You're old enough to be drafted. Hello, yeah, hello, because I remember Vietnam, right? You know what we worry about, of course, is that one that this lie is so pernicious that it's something like thirty percent of Americans, or something like sixty percent of all Republicans, don't believe that Biden is the president.
0: Yes, yeah, shocking. Uh,
1: yeah. yeah, that's the power of the lie of voter fraud. That's the power of it is that it allows this fantasy land to operate as if it was, it feels Kafkaesque. You've got okay. this big, right? You've got this big Gregor Samsa cockroach sitting there in the middle of the nation. And, and you just keep throwing dung on it like it's normal. It's not normal to have a life-size cockroach. We've got to know that and, and treat it accordingly. And that's what we have with this lie of voter fraud because it you saw, like I said, with Newt Gingrich saying, They stole it in Atlanta. They stole it in Philadelphia. They stole it in Milwaukee. You had Rudy Giuliani coming here and identifying African-American women as stealing the election in Atlanta with suitcases of ballots, even though there was all this evidence that that did not happen. They terrorized these women terrorize them. Um, But you saw the slander there where it was like, you know, they were passing around these USB ports and these ballots like they were dope dealers. Yeah. Yeah. That's the criminalization of blackness that links up with voter fraud in these cities.
0: And buzzkillers, you know, uh, again, I trust that you'll read the chapter and I'll trust that you read the book and the details are are in there. And the details are, there. are actually more and worse details than what we've been talking about. It is, it is, fundamentally shocking. It's something that the UN, in my view, should address. But of course, that'll probably never happen either. Well, it just remains for me to say thank you so much, Dr. Anderson, for coming on the show. We've long wanted to have you on the show. You're one of the most important historians in the country, most consequential historians in the country. And we hope that you come back on- okay. With your new research, Absolutely. and let's let's tease Absolutely. the bus killers and tell you tell please tell us what book you're working on now.
1: Well, so I have my paperback version of the second race and guns in a fatally unequal America will be out this year, and I bring it up to date with the January sixth insurrection okay. and the the killings that have happened. In this nation, while we refuse to deal with guns and with what the Second Amendment is really about. Well, I'm
0: hoping that you'll come on when that new edition comes out. And Buzzkillers, again, the book is on the Buzzkill bookshelf. But we also, thanks from thanks to Basic Books, have several copies to give away. So we're putting out a Patreon message about giving away this copy that I've been looking at while talking to Dr. Anderson. And so please, Patreon members, send your name in when you see that email. And again, Professor, thank you so, so much.
1: Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. I'm, I'm very, very glad to hear that. Buzzkillers, we will talk to all of you next week.